Hello everyone and welcome back to series 10 of the Great Women Artists podcast. I am so excited to say that this series is supported by the Levitt Collection, a vast and varied art collection of which a major portion is dedicated to fantastic works by women artists. The Levitt Collection's support for women in the arts is such that preparations are in full swing for the creation of the new museum, FAM, F-A-M-M, which will be opening in June 2024 in Mougins in the south of France. It will be the first major museum in mainland Europe dedicated to solely female artists and will exhibit a myriad of artworks all from the collection. Impressionist, surrealist, modern and contemporary art created by women from around the world will take pride of place in the Levitt's new museum, Female Artists of the Mujan Museum. But in the meantime, stay tuned by following at fam.mujan and don't miss the beautiful book Abstract Expressionists, The Women, published by Morel, which presents a selection of works from the collection alongside richly illustrated essays by scholars Ellen G. Landau and Joan M. Marta, all available now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Group of Artists podcast is the renowned art historian Kirsten Pye Buick, Professor of Art History and Chair of Africana Studies at the University of New Mexico. Buick's vital scholarship explores the material and visual culture of the first British Empire, the art of the US, African-American art, landscape representation, women as patrons and collectors of art. She also focuses on pro and anti-abolitionist images in the Atlantic world. In 2022, Buick was named Distinguished Scholar by the College Art Association and is currently working on a book. Inauthenticity, Cara Walker, and the Eidetics of Racism, about the artist renowned for her work that dismantles racist imagery through cutouts and colossal sculptures that challenge the imperious language that surrounds us. But the reason why we are speaking with Kirsten today is because she is also the world expert on one of the most influential artists of the 19th century. Edmonia Lewis, having in 2010 authored a highly distinguished book, Child of the Fire, Mary Edmonia Lewis and the Problem of Art History's Black and Indian Subject, about the sculptor acclaimed for her marble busts and figures that portray local people to mythical subjects, as well as deal with vital political narratives of the late 1800s. And I can't wait to find out more. Kirsten Pye Buick, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I am well, thank you. And it's an honor to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. And I look forward to our discussion. Fantastic. Me too. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I have been so excited because Edmonia Lewis is someone I really began to hear about just a few years ago when I was researching my book and who is really one of the most extraordinary artists of the 19th century for her work in marble as a woman, you know, something incredibly rare for that time, but also the detail and artistic excellence in her stunningly chiseled neoclassical figures, whether it be their elegantly coiled hair, elastic like folds of drapery or these idealized news with strong, robust builds. As you have written about extensively, she dealt with all sorts of subjects that fuse African-American narratives with a glorification of neoclassicism and went on to be enormously influential for the sculptures, especially in the Harlem Renaissance. So I'd just like to start by asking you, what attracted or intrigued you to the work of Edmonia Lewis? I started working on Lewis, I think in 1990. I decided to switch my field of expertise from medieval art to art of the United States. And I had a wonderful advisor in David Huntington at the University of Michigan, who really uh, encouraged me to make the switch, make the change. 
so much so that he actually featured my master's thesis in a symposium that he arranged. And one of the scholars at that symposium was Rick Powell, Professor Richard J. Powell, who teaches at Duke University. And I asked Dr. Powell, I said, you know, I'm kind of torn between subjects of U.S. genre painting or the sculptor Edmonia Lewis. And I said, what needs doing? And he encouraged me to pursue Lewis as a topic. And I haven't looked back since then. I kind of love that as well, because there are so many artists in art history whose stories are still overlooked and overshadowed. And I always encourage people, you know, if there is an artist who hasn't got much scholarship, make that change because your reach can be global. Yeah. I like the fact that she didn't have much biography and almost no autobiography, except for that which you read in interviews that she gave. So what I was able to do was build a context around her, becoming sensitive to the issues that she had to deal with and that she chose to address in her sculptures. The first global human rights movement is one of the contexts in which she works. And it's a context in which women globally began to find their voices and to speak out on behalf of other oppressed people. And so this was an exciting time to research. What was the first work that you discovered? The first work, of course, is in Howard University's collection, Forever Free. It's the work that she's most known. And it's the work that, as I researched it, I was puzzled by the responses to it. So Lewis takes, as many artists did, Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and makes a monument to that. But she does so four years after it's declared. So 1867, and two years after Lincoln's assassination. But she wants to make this sculpture and send it to honor a man who, during enslavement, worked to actively bring together families separated by enslavement. And so she creates a sculpture of a standing black male with his fist raised, chains broken, standing on the ball that once anchored him, but now he is triumphant over it. And at his side is the kneeling figure of a black woman. And her attitude, rather than kind of triumphant, is prayerful. Her hands are clasped. She looks up to the heavens. And in the 20th century and into the 21st, scholars tended to read that sculpture as the oppression suffered by Black women, a kind of double oppression of both gender and race. But I saw something different, and it's because I photocopied the sculpture multiple times. I took pictures of it and then photocopied the pictures, and I drew lines of sight. And what I saw was a kind of unity in the couple. It wasn't about a nascent idea of 20th century feminism. Because if you read the literature from the 19th century, Black women trusted Black men a heck of a lot more than they trusted white people. And so the place that she wanted the sculpture to be honored, the context of 19th century gendered and racial politics, spoke to me of something different in that sculpture. And it was one of harmony. But it also spoke to a compromise with bourgeois marriage arrangements. If this is what a lady looks like, a gentleman looks like, then Lewis was going to make a lady. And the thing I tell my students about the kneeling figure of the woman is I challenge them to tell me what a free woman looks like. Because Lewis modeled that kneeling figure on the Wedgwood medallion. The kneeling black man generated by Josiah Wedgwood in the 1790s, late 1790s, that when it crosses the Atlantic becomes the kneeling figure of a woman with the legend, am I not a woman and a sister? And so Lewis's image of the woman is still grounded in enslavement because we don't know what a free woman looks like. I'm fascinated to know what your students think a free woman should look like or does look like. No idea. (laughs) 
I mean, think about what's going on politically here in the United States with the reversal of Roe versus Wade. I'm 60 years old, right? And so by the age of 10, we were celebrating the rights to privacy and the rights for women to own their own bodies. But here in 2023, it's gone. It's gone for women. What do you think that that sculpture means today? I think today it is still very meaningful and evocative, so much so that the Metropolitan Museum of Art borrowed it from Howard University and staged an entire mini exhibition around emancipatory imagery. Yeah, it's such a symbolic work in terms of what it can mean today for everyone and and women, as you say. I mean, why were you drawn to telling the story of Edmonia Lewis, you know, after you got that go ahead from your professor? I was intrigued by both her Black heritage and her Ojibwe heritage. She is Native American and she claimed that proudly. I was interested in the kind of discrete separation. You know, her mother was Ojibwe, her dad was Black. But in her sculptures, there's a very discrete separation between those two lines of her heritage. And even into the 20th century, scholars were saying she clearly preferred her Ojibwe heritage over her Black heritage because her Ojibwe uh, people and ancestors had never been enslaved. That just doesn't make sense that you can choose one side of yourself to prefer more than the other, especially when so much is made of her Black heritage, because in terms of appearance, she reads as Black to us, more so than Ojibwe. But she honored that part of her heritage while also kind of tapping into the fame of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. She made her Native American sculptures based on the Song of Hiawatha. Yeah, I can't wait to get into that in a bit. So she was born wildfire, Mary Edmonia Lewis. She was born in Greenbush in New York in 1844, as you say, with this dual heritage. I mean, tell us about her childhood because a lot happened. A lot happened. So she was born in upstate New York. And what we tend to forget about upstate New York and New York in general is that it was the largest slaveholding state in the North. Slavery doesn't technically end until the mid-1850s in New York. But Lewis, whose mother was Ojibwe, was born free. And what happens is that they change English common law to say that rather than children inheriting their condition from their fathers, they inherit their condition from their mothers. But either way, Lewis would have been born free because her father was also free. We think that he was an immigrant from Haiti. He had been married previously and had a son named Samuel. And when he married Lewis's mother, he had Samuel as Lewis's half-brother. And when her parents died very young, Samuel took over her care. And uh, he went west to mine gold and to really build wealth to support his sister back on the East Coast. She was raised by her aunts, very outdoorsy, making souvenirs for tourists. Some of the families that had tourist businesses at Niagara Falls still have them today. Even before the English arrived, before Europeans arrived, Niagara Falls was a meeting point for First Nations people. And so Lewis was very active, very busy, learning to make moccasins and All the things that had the flavor of indigenous creativity, but usefulness in a Euro-American household. And do you think that those early essences of making must have influenced her at all? Absolutely. If you look at the size of her uh, sculptures based on Longfellow, they're tourist-sized. Her largest sculpture was her Cleopatra, but we can get to that later. We will, we will. I cannot wait to get into that. So in 1859, she attends Oberlin College in Ohio, a co-educational school that is also one of the first schools to accept both female and black students. What did this mean for her? Were the girls entitled to the same education as boys? So at Oberlin, women were not allowed to study geometry. They were not allowed to study Latin. They were not allowed to study the higher mathematics, 
uh, they were educated, as they said, to their sphere. And so Lewis had an education fit for a housewife or as a teacher of other women's children. Wow. And so what kind of town was Oberlin? Oberlin was besieged on all sides for its liberalism. Ohio or Cleveland, for example, was really, really powered by the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party was the party of enslavement. Surrounding towns highly disapproved of Oberlin allowing women and non-white students to attend. So they were always watching Oberlin for any infraction. And Oberlin's student body, they weren't necessarily welcoming of women or Black students either. And so it was into this kind of fraught atmosphere that Oberlin admits Edmonia Lewis. Oberlin was also a temperance campus. No alcohol, no smoking, no unchaperoned activities between men and women. Oh, my goodness. And Lewis boarded with a family that was known for its abolitionist leanings. But in 1863 or so, Lewis is accused by two of her White House mates of feeding them wine laced with Spanish fly and Spanish flies an aphrodisiac. They do this because they're caught unchaperoned with two men <laughs> and they, they get sick and so they have to seek help. And so now these two young white women are caught violating lots of Oberlin's rules. So they, t they blame Lewis. And then they accuse her of lacing their wine. Well, the family that Lewis is boarding with suppress this information for as long as possible. But there are rumors starting. And the newspaper that's still in business today, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, starts leaking these stories that two young white ladies were poisoned. The perpetrator is rumored to be black. And so these stories that are leaking all the way to Cleveland create this kind of frenzy on the campus. And Lewis is kidnapped. And she's taken to an open field and she's beaten. Her collarbone is broken. She was quite small. I mean, she's maybe four foot five. Her collarbone was broken. She was stripped naked and left in the field. She may have been raped, but according to the standards of the day, she could not speak that because it would have ruined her reputation. And so in order to protect her, the family allowed her to be arrested. And she was put behind bars for her safety. She was successfully defended by John Mercer Langston, who is the great uncle of Langston Hughes. So this connection to the Harlem Renaissance, it's even deeper than we understand. Frederick Douglass became an advocate of hers during her persecution at Oberlin. So she was cleared of all charges and in the meantime, she's not allowed to join the skating club. She petitions to be allowed to join. She's still fighting. But then she's accused of stealing art supplies. And Mrs. Dascom, the head of the ladies' college, refuses to allow her registration for her final term. So she never graduates from Oberlin. But with letters of recommendation from Frederick Douglass, John Mercer Langston, who also becomes the first Black elected official in Ohio. She moves to Boston. Wow. And how old is she when she moves to Boston? And, and I mean, this is also where she establishes herself as a professional artist. I mean, where did that kind of love of art or that kind of artistic education? You know, the stealing art supplies, that charge, lets us know that she was taking art classes that she probably didn't steal art supplies, but they knew that they could kind of finish her with that charge. So her love of art starts at Oberlin, but she tells a different story for the press once she arrives in Boston, that her love of art started when she saw a statue of Benjamin Franklin and said, I too can make a stone man. <laughs> 
was always kind of playing the primitive for the press, but it was just a play. It was just a performance. That's so interesting because also when you still read the accounts, it still sort of says that very sort of face value as well. Okay, so she's in Boston at this time. She's 20 years old and in Boston. I mean, this is extraordinary. I mean, this this woman just had so much determination. What is she making? I mean, here, is she able to study under people? Is she able to establish a studio? What happens? So she establishes a studio thanks to Samuel, who's in California now, and he becomes a barber as well. He dies in Montana in the 1890s. And he's celebrated in Montana. He marries a a white woman and becomes stepfather to her children. And his obituary says that he was the whitest black man that they had ever known. (laughs) It was high praise. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes, it was high praise indeed in these Western United States. So anyway, Samuel helps her set up a studio on Tremont Street. It's where the artist Edward Mitchell Bannister, one of the few Black landscape artists, also had his studio. It was the center of abolitionist activity, and Edmonia Lewis was at the center of it in terms of location, but also in terms of patrons. And her patrons kind of write her into existence because The abolitionist press in this country really starts in the 1830s. And by the 1860s, they are sophisticated, they are widespread, and they are writing stories about Black people who disprove the argument of Black inferiority. And so Lewis was an instrument of abolitionism. So on the surface, in public, they praised her work, They celebrated the medallions of Abraham Lincoln or kind of the heroes of abolitionism. But in their letters to one another in private, they talk about how they discouraged her from moving ahead of her own skills and her own talent. And Lydia Maria Child, who was the editor for William Lloyd Garrison's newspaper, The Liberator, writes very disapprovingly in private letters about Lewis and about how she comes from a very young people, meaning that Black people were primitive and uh, not capable of making what it was called ideal works. And those were works akin to history painting, sculptures that had kind of high ideal subjects. So the Bible, literature, these subjects were considered too advanced for Lewis to even comprehend. So Lewis makes a sculpture of Robert Goldshaw. He had just been martyred as the white man, the Boston Brahmin, who had volunteered to lead black soldiers in the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln has finally been convinced to arm black men for this fight. And Lincoln was hesitant because he didn't want to make the war about race. He didn't want to make the Civil War about slavery. But Black men were adamant, men like Frederick Douglass, who volunteered his own sons for this war. So Robert Goldshaw from Boston agrees to lead one of the first all-Black regiments into battle, and he's martyred. He is killed very early. And so Lewis makes a bust of him in plaster, and she makes 100 copies eventually. But she shows one of the first busts to Lydia Maria Child, who was perhaps one of the most influential women in the United States at the time. She was the editor of William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator. She was head of various anti-slavery societies. She published books titled The Slave's Friend and sold them in abolitionist markets. So she was powerful, but she did not approve of Lewis's bust of Shaw. And she goes to Robert Gould Shaw's mother and she writes letters to Shaw's mother saying, Lewis is about to do this sculpture and I disapprove. She really isn't worthy to kind of touch the image of this sainted man. and, And I'm sure you would agree with me. And so she's gossiping about Lewis and undermining Lewis's work. Child buys one of the first plaster busts. And then she cuts it 
where she thinks Lewis should have terminated the sculpture and then invites Lewis over and shows it to her and says, see, isn't that better? And how is Lewis supposed to respond? Yes, that's better. And Lewis sells 100 copies in plaster and as soon as possible relocates to Italy. Yeah, I, I remember there's this interview with her in the New York Times in 1878 where she says, you know, I was practically driven to Rome in order to obtain the opportunities for art, culture, and to find a social atmosphere where I was not constantly reminded of my colour. Yes. So in 1865, she arrives by boat to Italy. Florence first. Florence was the established colony. It was established by Hiram Powers and Horatio Greeno. American sculptors around 1825. It was a center of poetry, and Lewis was greeted with racism. She was turned away in Florence. And the women in the United States, the abolitionist women, are writing letters to Florence. What does this mean? Why are you turning her away? Why aren't you housing her? Why aren't you making her welcome? If you don't straighten up, we may have to publish this in the newspaper. And so Lewis goes to Rome. The Americans there are a lot more welcoming, but welcoming only to a degree. But I want to say this about Lewis in Italy. She finally becomes part of a majority because Lewis was Catholic. And so in Rome, she finds her spiritual home. She learns Italian very quickly. She begins to cultivate English and Scottish Catholics. They become her patrons after Reconstruction collapses in the United States. And so, you know, I mean, by 1868, she's making some of her most well-known sculptures. You know, she's only a couple of years into Rome, but already, I mean, the Minihaha or Hiawatha that the Met have, I mean, they're so technically advanced. She starts those as soon as she arrives in Rome. Her first marriage of Hiawatha and courtship of Hiawatha are made in 1866. Incredible. And so tell us a bit about a background about this. So Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was a poet who I know she admired from a distance. And so tell us about his poetry and how that informed her work. So Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was a professor at Harvard University he was the first English translator of Dante's Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradise. He translated those into English. He writes three poems that are linked. They're kind of uh, an elegy of the United States. So the courtship of Miles Standish is one. There's another one that's set in Canada, and it tells a story of how the Canadians migrated to Louisiana to become Cajuns. And then he tells the song of Hiawatha. And in the trilogy, Hiawatha models acceptable Indians. And I'm using Indians deliberately here because that is the term given to First Nations people to racialize them. Indian is the term that reduced First Nations linguistically, culturally, nationally into one people so that the federal government could deal with them as one people and dispossess them of their land. And so the ideal Indian was one resigned to their fate and they disappear. And that's very much the song of Hiawatha. It features this, the sentimental death of Minnehaha, dying of no really known illness, but dying because she's such a good person. And this goes to a larger cultural issue around womanhood, that the only acceptable speech for women was either suicide or death by mysterious illness or opium addiction. Whole nother story. Wait, could you explain that a bit more? I've never heard this. Really? If you look at 19th century paintings and sculptures, suicidal, dead and dying women were overwhelmingly represented. In fact, the sculptor that Lewis studies with in Boston, Edward Brackett, is famous for his, his work of a dead mother and child. So many images of dead women. But it has to do with the pushback against first wave feminism. And so you have women in chains 
suicidal women, dead and dying women, as a caution against white women who were outspoken, first on behalf of Native Americans, then on behalf of the enslaved, and then they returned to issues around Native Americans. But they also, even as they are doing this, arguing for their own rights within marriage, which they described as a civil death. And so is this what also sort of spurs like the pre-Raphaelites to always think about like the dying Ophelia or the... Yes, because women in England were becoming outspoken. But it's so interesting, sorry, just a totally different thing, but like the rise of spiritualism and spiritualism being one of the first movements where women could actually be outspoken because women said that they had spirits channeling through them. You'll have to have me back. I'll tell you about all the dead and dying women. Okay, literally, (laughs) this is amazing. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so Minnehaha. So Longfellow. So Minnehaha suffers her the mysterious and beautiful death. Edgar Allan Poe says there's nothing more kind of engaging than the death of a beautiful woman. (laughs) And Hiawatha gets depressed and he sees the inevitability of white conquest and he just kind of drifts away in a boat, right? And so Longfellow's Song of Hiawatha, it represents Native Americans who leave the right way, who don't stay around to become deceptive and cunning as they do in his poem about Miles Standish which is a Puritan story. It's the story of Puritan New England and the Native Americans who chose not to leave become corrupt and twisted uh, by their contact with a superior European civilization. So Lewis, in choosing Hiawatha, chooses the most sentimental figures, but she stops just short of their deaths and their disappearance. She only tells the happiest parts of their narrative, courtship and marriage. She refuses to depict the death of Minnehaha, even though actresses would portray it on stage. Other artists like Courier and Ives trafficked in these images because they were so popular and really fed into the death and, and suicide of beautiful women. Wow. I mean, it also just speaks to this much larger narrative about what artists choose to represent in the story, whether it be, you know, thinking about the genesis or something and the amount of depictions of the temptation. And that's where I found Lewis's agency, because in terms of Forever Free, rather than depict Lincoln standing over this Black couple, well, first of all, Lewis chooses to represent freedom in the form of a Black couple who are now free to marry But she also doesn't give us an implied Lincoln or an implied allegorical figure of white liberty who stands over them and waves them onto the threshold of freedom. Instead, freedom is actuated by the black male figure. And the abolitionist press really didn't know what to do with this. Lydia Maria Child threw up her hands, said, I'm not going to even talk about this. So it was up to the Christian recorder to write about it. And what the white woman abolitionist said was that his muscles swell with gratitude. And that praise the Lord seems to be coming from his lips. So she had to neutralize this powerful black male through language. And in terms of the Song of Hiawatha, Lewis does not show death or disappearance, or, you know, kind of extermination through other ways. She chooses only the happiest moments. And for the Black couple, only the most powerful. But this is why, I mean, you know, all these things are myths or they're sort of fictitious stories. But in a way, once you supply so many images of the same scene, for example, the woman being the temptress or something, you start to believe that that's what the story is. And this is why it is so crucial that we need a range of storytellers. Yes, absolutely. So in 1875, she looks at Hager in the wilderness. Yes. So there's a doctor. In Rome. In Rome, who is shopping for her tombstone. A woman who defied all strictures against studying medicine. And she goes to Edmonia Lewis's studio and said, I'm a first and you're a first. And I want you to make my sculpture from my grave. And they worked it out together, Hygieia, the goddess of medicine. And that is in Mount Auburn Cemetery. 
And Lewis becomes part in that way of the cemetery movement. So our relationship with death is very different from the one that they had in the 19th century. Cemeteries were places where you walked in the evenings. You not only communed with the dead, you got to see beautiful sculptures. Death was not hidden in hospitals. It was not hidden away. And it was not feared in the way that it is today. And so cemeteries become these open outdoor sculpture spaces. And Lewis is in one of the most important in the country. This is really Lewis's kind of, I feel, strongest feminist era. The sculpture of Hygieia, where out of all the women sculptors working in Rome, Lewis also creates Hagar. And Hagar had been attempted before, and she's usually shown with Ishmael. But Lewis makes a different decision. So Hagar is the story told in Genesis of Abraham, who is married to Sarah. Sarah is 90 years old and can't bear a child. And so Sarah gives Abraham permission to essentially have a child with Hagar, their Egyptian bondservant. It's a story of rape and succession. Sarah gives Abraham permission to have a child with Hagar. And then God creates a miracle, and both Sarah and Hagar are pregnant with Abraham's child, or children. Sarah accuses Hagar of being arrogant and kicks her out, pregnant with this child. And then Hagar is invited back in. She has Ishmael. Sarah has Isaac. And once more, Hagar is expelled into the wilderness. When sculptors and painters represented Hagar, they usually represented her with Ishmael, clinging to her, both dying of starvation and thirst. But Lewis makes a different decision. And at some point in the biblical story, Hagar puts Ishmael away so that she doesn't have to witness his death. Lewis gives us a singular figure of Hagar. So Ishmael is either in her womb during the first expulsion, or he's already been set aside during the second expulsion. And she has Hagar with a, a water jug at her feet, kind of symbolizing the search for water. Hagar's hands clasped in prayer and just desperate, right? But in giving us a lone figure, you have to consider the context. And I was a medievalist at first. And so I was quite familiar with medieval Italian sculpture or Renaissance sculpture, if you will. And I started looking at Hagar and it started ringing a bell for me. And the model is Donatello's Mary Magdalene, that sculpture that he carved out of wood and then gilded. And I started to question, why would Lewis give us a penitent Magdalene? And if you look at the culture of rape in the 19th century, women were blamed they were considered to be at fault for the sexual violence perpetrated against them. And so in giving us a penitent Hagar, Lewis gives us a penitent figure who has come into a higher consciousness as dictated by the 19th century. And so she's not this beast who can be bred and then have a child and discard it and not care for it. Instead, she is not only the metaphor for chattel slavery in the 19th century, she's also the story of Black women who are able to feel, who are able to know the difference between right and wrong. And so she gives us a Hagar who is embodied subjectivity according to the standards and mores of the day. What I find so emotional is how these stories were sort of cut out of my education. The people controlling the education or the, the stories actually don't want me to see that. And so when I look at Hagar now, I mean, she's a hero and we need to know about Edmund Lewis's rendition of her so we can feel like we can also have that agency as people. So in 1875, she makes the death of Cleopatra. Tell us about this and, and the context in which this was shown. So World's Fairs were 
coming out parties for nations. Great Britain was the first nation to industrialize. As a result, it was the first nation who had really focused on cities before French Impressionism. And Great Britain was the first nation to host a World's Fair. So 1851 is the Crystal Palace. And it's there that Julia Margaret Cameron visits, buys a camera for her son so that he can learn not only about art, but about the science and technology behind photography. But she takes the camera for herself and is rightfully celebrated as one of the first and most important women photographers to emerge. Uh, the next World's Fair is France. The war in 1872 causes Monet to seek refuge in London, and he sees the works of Turner. And that's what inspires Impressionism. Kirsten, you're giving me the most amazing education. I want to come and study with you in New Mexico. <laughs> you would be more than welcome, although I would learn a lot from you as well. <laughs> perfect, perfect. So... France is the next World's Fair, 1867, and then they have a succession of World's Fairs. But then 1875, the planning begins for the United States World's Fair. And Edmonia Lewis learns that the commissioner for the World's Fair will be coming to Rome and visiting the studios of the sculptors to pick art for the great exhibition. And Lewis begins to prepare her death of Cleopatra. And she does so by looking at two previous Cleopatras, monumental in size, William Wetmore Story's Cleopatra and Charles Ridgway Gould's Cleopatra, which was celebrated as the first real Greek-descended white Cleopatra. So Gould was taking issue with Story's Cleopatra because Story's Cleopatra was celebrated as Black African, weaponized by the abolitionists because Cleopatra proved that Black people could run a wealthy nation like Egypt. Gould represented the other side of that debate. And so Lewis decides to not only enter the arena of monumental sculpture, but to also engage the debate of Cleopatra's race. And in 1875, the commissioner for the Philadelphia Centennial visited her studio, saw her model for the Cleopatra, and chose it to be in the exhibition. And she wept. She wept. It weighs more than a ton. She had to pack it and ship it. And by this time, she had helpers in her studio. Initially, she doesn't because she had a lot to prove. And that's another story. Women with helpers were accused of not doing their own conceptual work, even though Italian artists working in the studios of foreign artists was quite common. Women weren't allowed that same luxury. So Louis ships the finished Cleopatra off, and it premieres at the Philadelphia Centennial, alongside a landscape by Edward Mitchell Bannister. Bannister wins a prize in Philadelphia that they try to deny him once they find out he's Black, because there are no Black figures in his landscape. So they assume that this French Barbizon-inspired landscape was done by a white man. Landscape is a whole nother issue. I'll tell you about Georgia O'Keeffe one day and what she had to go through to become a recognized landscape artist. Very few women are recognized before Georgia O'Keeffe. There's a reason for that. So Lewis's Cleopatra premieres alongside banisters under the oaks. And one of the most important visitors to the Philadelphia Centennial was the painter Henry Ossawa Tanner. So World's Fairs are not only the coming out parties of nations, it's where nations show their advancements in culture, in technology, in weapons of war. It's where they, they compete. It's a bit like the kind of Venice Biennale today or something. Yes. So Lewis's Cleopatra premieres with a lot of fanfare and curiosity because they realize that her Cleopatra doesn't have a wide bridge of the nose. It doesn't have the slightly thickened lips 
of stories, Cleopatra. And so, hmm, that Cleopatra is not sub-Saharan African. She's not black. Her Cleopatra doesn't have the sharp, straight nose of Thomas Ridgway Gould's Cleopatra. Instead, her Cleopatra has the aquiline nose, the kind of eagle's beak that you find on the coins minted in Rome of Cleopatra. And so Lewis chooses an alternative representation. She chooses to be archaeologically correct rather than enter the debate about Cleopatra's race. But she also creates her sculpture in succession. So Story's Cleopatra is contemplating death. Gould's Cleopatra is in the process of dying. And you can tell by what's called the prolapsed arm. It's the arm that signifies death in representational sculpture and in paintings of the deposition of Christ from the cross. It's that arm that's completely lacked. And so Gould's sculpture is in the process of dying. Lewis's sculpture is already dead. So she carefully sequences and profiles Cleopatra outside of the debates around physiognomy and phrenology and craniology. And what does it mean that she's also already shown her dead in terms of a kind of proto-feminist conversation? Her Cleopatra is free, free in 19th century terms of dead women, right? And suicide as a speaking act. Women were allowed a very limited range of power. One was influence, where they led by moral example. Another was through tears. And this is why Shakespeare's Cleopatra was so compelling, because she cried throughout his play. And this was a woman's power. Influence, tears, medication, invalidism brought on by opium addiction, and the ultimate speech act was suicide, self-termination. And so not proto-feminist. This was a woman's speech in the 19th century. And by killing herself, Cleopatra denies the Roman Empire the victory of her living body processed through the forum as a prisoner of war. And so what is the legacy of someone like Edmonia Lewis? And, and why in 1990 there was so little scholarship? She dies in 1907 in London. And it's because of the most ferocious pope on the planet, uh, Pope Pius IX, who created dioceses in England. He returned Catholicism to England. And even as he fights against Italian unification, and we know Lewis was both Catholic and pro-unification, and so she had to kind of separate herself in this instance from her spirituality, from her religion. But what happened when Italy unified was that they started looking towards Africa, because that's how European powers prove themselves. You go and you colonize Africa. So she started hearing all this rhetoric about African inferiority, Italian rights to Eritrea and Ethiopia. And in 1884, Turin hosted the first human zoo, where they put Africans in a zoo-like setting to prove Italian superiority. And Lewis, I'm sure, felt like, I have seen this before. I cannot go through this again. I left the United States to be free in Italy. And now I'm hearing all these plans about colonizing Africa. Fortunately, Pope Pius IX had made a home for her in England. And she moves to London and she dies of Bright's disease, a kidney failure at age 66 or 65. Wow. And her tombstone is in London. We finally found her grave. Marilyn Richardson found her death notice in London. And we know she uh, died in Hammersmith. They finally raised money to give her a proper tombstone. But we know where she is now. And we know when she died and where she died. And Great Britain becomes very important for her. 
as I said before, because it's her Catholic patronage that she comes to rely on. And she creates a slew of Virgin Marys and biblical scenes after 1876 and the collapse of her American patronage and the collapse of her abolitionist patronage. Extraordinary. And why do you think it took so long for her story to be put in? Oh, as you said, Katie, the Harlem Renaissance remembered her. Yeah. Tanner remembered her. Our first authors of survey texts, James Porter, who founded uh, Howard University's art program and who published Modern Negro Art. Elaine Locke knew of her. They knew. But how these things get written into art history, she's left out of mainstream texts. But Black people remembered and they knew. But around the time of second wave feminism and the recovery of women's stories, 1960s and 70s, she makes a return. Amazing. I'm so grateful to you for your incredible work. And Kirsten, I can't thank you enough for telling this story today. And I'm going to get you back on to talk about all these other things because I know that the audience is going to love this. But as does the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could say something or ask something to Edmonia, what would it be? I would thank her for carving her own path, for never compromising and for never conceding the center. She remained at the center of her story. She never accepted the margins or marginalization. She persevered. Incredible. Kirsten, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. This has been a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Kirsten Buick on the trailblazer, Edmonia Lewis. I am absolutely in awe of all that Kirsten has said today. I thought she told her story so powerfully and I really can't wait to find out all of that information about Georgia O'Keeffe and also the women of 19th century Britain. So much to explore. This episode was sounded with the brilliant Nardas Manelic and thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie. Katie Hessel.